Bibles with you tonight, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. There are ways to tell where someone is from and the place they call home. In our text tonight, Paul teaches us that the people we imitate, the people we are like or try to be like, indicate our true citizenship, the political entity that defines our identity and status, our privileges and our duties. This word citizenship that appears in verse 20 is related to the word Paul used earlier, way back in 127, when referring to their manner of life being worthy of the gospel of Christ. They were trying very hard to be good citizens of Rome and Philippi, Philippi, but he wanted them to make a priority of the fact that actually they now belong to Christ and his kingdom. Tonight, though, rather than implying it, Paul makes it explicit that while they are, in a sense, citizens of Rome, they are something much more than that. Bonafide citizens of heaven itself, where Jesus, the true Lord and Savior, reigns right now. This theme of citizenship gives us the backdrop for the contrast that Paul draws here between his positive example and the negative or detrimental example of his opponents. Paul writes to a church in a pagan city and declares to them that their true identity is actually defined by a city to which they've never been or even seen, a city that lies ahead of them in the future. Residents of ancient Philippi were very familiar with the idea that one's identity could actually be determined by a city very far from one's birthplace and residence. Philippi was unique in its region in Asia Minor because it was a legitimate colony of Rome, the capital of the empire that was in Italy. Now, remember, we talked about this in the very beginning. Caesar Augustus won a very decisive battle just outside the city years before this and conferred the status of colony on them, giving its citizens the privileges of citizenship in the city of Rome itself, which included being exempt from imperial taxes and having the protection of due process under Roman law. So you can imagine how tempting it would have been for the people of Philippi to have fallen in love with Rome and want to be a part of Rome and thought of Rome as their true home. So apart from slaves, freedmen, and peasants, Philippi's citizens were Rome's citizens, and they didn't even live there. And Paul capitalizes on this connection tonight to proclaim something meant to be life-changing, epic making to the Philippian believers. Though they have not yet set foot in the heavenly city where their Lord now rules, that city already defines their dignity and determines their destiny. You can usually tell whether someone is from the Ohio Valley. I hope I don't offend here by their accent. You, you Now, I don't think people from Columbus have an accent, but maybe other people think they do. I don't know if Folks here think of their accent, but you all say your O's a certain way. I don't know if you know that or not. It's a little different. Everyone calls their grandpa Pap here. I noticed that and just, uh, some of you say Ewins, maybe even Yins. You call a creek a crick, which I just, there are no I's in that word at all. It's too, it's a long E. It's, it's creek, but that's fine. My, um, 
the funny thing is that my U.S. government teacher in the 12th grade called the accent. So that's this was in Dresden, so the Zanesville area, Muskingum County, not very far from here at all. That whole region of Ohio, southeastern Ohio, has its own accent. Same thing. And it's very much like this. And he called it Southeast Ohio Hilljack. I'll never forget that. Um, my mother-in-law has this accent. She says things like, Warsh. There's just, there's no, there isn't an R within 20 miles of that word. And she says Warsh, but that, that's fine. That's fine. Paul teaches us here that our values and our choices reflect the accents of where we're from spiritually. People that have faith in Jesus, no matter what earthly city they're from, they've had a higher citizenship conferred on them. Citizenship in heaven. And who we are is no longer determined by where we come from, but by where we're going. This isn't an add-on to the Christian life. It's, it's, it's not um, that we only really think about when we think about where we're going to go when we die or at funerals or when we sing certain songs that like it's an afterthought. Like, you know, technically my citizenship is in heaven. No, my citizenship is so much in heaven that I should live now like that's where I am now. My values, my accents should all reflect where I'm actually from. A place I've never been, but that God calls my home. It is truly meant to shape and define our earthly identity. The Lordship of the living Christ, whose reign confers our citizenship on us, is the grounds on which we stand firm. Let me pray, and we'll look at this passage together. Father, be with us tonight. Be with me, Lord, as I preach. Help me preach this text in a way that makes it understandable and accessible to all of us. God, please keep me from pride and self-centeredness and self-service in the preaching of your word. Please help me, Father. And be with everyone tonight who hears. Lord, help all to hear and to believe. Father, by your spirit, give us grace through each day of our lives to understand what we're taught in your word. We ask and pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So verse 17 now in chapter 3. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, so that uh, raises the question, what is the example that Paul has set for these believers that we can track if we were just to use the letter of Philippians itself? What kind of man is Paul? In chapter 1, Paul is filled with joy and thanksgiving because they partnered together for the sake of the gospel. So his joy comes from knowing that the gospel is advancing even while he is sitting in prison. Paul is confident. He's a confident man that God will be faithful to keep his saving word to the Philippian believers. His priorities are all based on the gospel and shape his prayers for them to abound in love, to grow in knowledge and discernment, and to look with hope to the glory of God. And regardless of whether Christ is proclaimed in pretense or in truth, Paul is simply thankful that at least Christ is being proclaimed. The meaning of Paul's life is Christ, which meant for him that to die was gain. His desire is that his own life and those of the Philippian Christians would only be worthy of the gospel of Christ. His prayer for them is that they would be of one mind, standing side by side for the sake of the faith 
of the gospel. Paul is willing to die to himself. He does it every day. wants them to do the same. And that this would be the only conflict in which they engage themselves. Then in chapter 2, his prayer for them is for a unity that's centered on Christ and therefore can't be broken or interrupted by selfish agendas and complaining and grumbling and the hope in the world that damages faith in Christ and makes people self-centered rather rather than others-centered. He wants them to shine as bright lights for Christ in the world, even if it means he remains in prison and suffers for their sakes. Paul's hope for his own salvation and justification is the righteousness that comes from God only by faith in chapter 3. The righteousness given to him by Christ that he wants nothing of his own goodness or accomplishments or even his heritage to be counted towards him or who he is. And Paul presses on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, living in this restless sort of resting where he knows it is finished and Christ has made him perfect before God, but he doesn't want to coast and he doesn't want to become lazy. This is Paul. This is his example in Philippi. He's fixed on the supremacy and worth of Jesus Christ, not just for himself, but for those God had given him to shepherd. All his priorities are shaped by the gospel, and so he's willing to suffer and lose if it means the advancement of Christ. Paul is grounded on earth because he's grounded in heaven, actually. That's why his life looked the way it did. That's why he says the things he says. And it's the life he wants for these believers also. So he tells them, keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us, he says here in verse 1, meaning his missionary team of Christ-centered believers, pioneers for the faith. Look to people who live like Paul does. They are not many. But look to them whose reasons and motivations are not based on what they might gain for themselves, but only on the advancement of Christ at any cost. And so he says in verse 18, for many, so here's why I want you to look at me and others like me, Paul says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And he's talking about people in the church that would call themselves Christian, namely many of the teachers that are trying to lead astray the Philippian believers. So there are other examples to which they could look. There are other people they could try to emulate and imitate. But Paul defines those whose ministry is for themselves and their own advancement and advantages as enemies of the cross of Christ. They are opposed to suffering for the sake of Christ. Opposed to the teaching of the cross that salvation comes by grace through faith alone apart from works. They are opposed to the Christ-focused nature of the gospel that makes us take our eyes off of ourselves and our own performance projects. They serve Christ for how it will make them look and what it might do to advance their agendas and desires. And Paul says of such examples in verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These descriptors all point to self-absorption, self-centeredness. These people are trusting in themselves for salvation, not the ongoing work of God in them that He's promised to complete. So their end is destruction. 
don't imitate them, they're going to be destroyed. Their God is their belly. Right? They are hungry for the world's approval and its riches and acclaim and to have a following. And all their hopes and dreams are in what they can make this world become for them. Their God is their belly. They want people to think highly of them. They just need fed and think highly of their opinions and their judgments and their character. And just notice, and just in that verse alone, how these examples are set in such stark contrast to the way Paul is. Paul did not look like one you'd want to be like on the outside. Paul didn't look like a winner. He didn't look like a champion. He didn't have a huge following. If he wasn't rejected, he was stoned or beaten or stripped naked and chased away wherever he went. But for those whose God is their belly, appearances were everything. Following the example of such teachers might get you somewhere in life then. Maybe this, maybe Christianity is the place where you could finally become the person you wanted to be and have all that respect and glory and all these things. The place following Paul's example might get you was prison. So you can see how that wouldn't sell. Choose wisely who you imitate, beloved. And he says, and they glory in their shame. Paul's glory was in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where Paul's boast was. If he was going to boast, he was going to point you away from himself and onto Christ who had saved him. That's what he wants to make known. Christ is what he wants to be his legacy. The glory of the bad examples they could follow was in themselves, which, as Paul writes in Romans, as he writes here, will lead to shame. It will lead you to shame to rely on and focus or focus on yourself. They actually gloried in what it is about them that God was going to judge and find lacking. Those things which were their shame, their love for the world and love for approval and all these things. But the last phrase in verse 19 tonight is the one to really grab onto in context. It summarizes why these pretentious teachers are like this, fundamentally, with minds set on earthly things. Why are they the way they are? So self-absorbed and prideful and foolish because their minds are not set on things above, but on things of the earth. Now, do you think they thought that about themselves? Do you think they recognized that about themselves? There were preachers and teachers in Philippi that loved being citizens of Rome more than being citizens of heaven. They despised the cross and they loved the world. All these things, acclaim, applause, being thought highly of by others, craving the lust of the flesh, finding a home to love and belong to in this world. These are all earthly things. These are earthly desires, earthly impulses. They are not meant to be fed. They're not meant to be protected. They aren't safe. They compromise the faith. They compromise our ability to hope in Christ. They blind us. They interrupt our vision. Minds set on earthly things. Do we understand how easy it is to be like that? That's the default position of humanity. 
we set our minds on earthly things. We set everything on what we can see and what feels like it's now and more immediate and more pressing. And this, this is, this, um, cuts across the entire grain of Christianity. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a side issue what our minds are set on. And setting our minds on earthly things is not a path to like maybe a little bit of a less glorious heaven for us. It's the path to destruction, Paul says. Destruction. I know we believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and authority and inspiration and perfection of Scripture. Then when it talks, listen to it. If, if Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit directly, tells us things, why won't we believe him? Why would we even play and, and, and entertain in the least earthly things? And setting our mind on them as though we have the spiritual power to keep the worldly things at bay and exalt the spiritual things. Beloved, we don't. We don't. There's a reason he's describing these teachers in this way. Be careful who you imitate, beloved. Be mindful of who you want to be like. And what it is that attracts you to them and makes you want to emulate them or belong to them or esteem them so highly and be mindful of falling in love with Rome because Rome offers you some temporal benefits in the here and now. Notice what Paul gives in verse 20 as the antithesis to having our minds set on earthly things. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. You see what he does there? He goes right from mindset on earthly things and then he contrasts it. He says, but our citizenship, so that's what it is to have mind sets on earthly things. It's a matter of where you think you belong. Citizenship. Where do you actually call home? But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things like Rome. To himself. Paul speaks of our heavenly citizenship as the opposite of having our minds set on earthly things. Just ponder that for a moment. Now I'm very familiar with how upsetting this kind of teaching can be to us. Who love calling America home. And there are all kinds of benefits and freedoms and luxuries that we enjoy or at least might take advantage of through hard work in America. That's part of what makes America so great. All the opportunity there is when much of the world doesn't even have that much less their basic needs provided for. Just please do not mistake temporal blessings provided by God as a reason to fall in love with it here. Beloved, it's dangerous. And we don't see it as that. Or there wouldn't be warnings to the contrary. Don't dismiss out of hand before you've let the Spirit 
work on you and the word have its way with you. Don't dismiss out of hand the possibility that we are so blinded by the privileges we enjoy that we've come to set our mind on earthly things. Be honest with yourself. The Philippians text is why it's so very crucial to have all our hopes and dreams shaped by the fact that even while I live in a country as great as this one, my citizenship is in heaven. That's a different place. Why would I treat this like my home? Right? We become so caught up in our heritage, our history, our values, and all these things. Look at the example of Paul. That's, that's, where you have, that's what Paul is saying. Look to his example. Right? What, what was he like? What Israel was the one nation on earth God had called his own and promised to bless. And what did Paul think of his connection with them? Did he, did he embrace it? Did he consider it part of his identity? Or did he say just before in chapter 3, get all of it away from me? I don't want to depend on it. I don't want to think about it. I want it all to be counted as refuse, as loss, because I want to know Christ. In other words, beloved, if we want to know Christ, we can't know anything else like Christ. All that affection we can put in 50 different places. Beloved, it's all meant to be in Christ. This is Paul's example for us, for the church What shaped Paul's values? What guided his life? What informed his decisions? There's The only people worth imitating today are those that are exactly like Paul. And so if you think, well, I don't have anyone like that in my life, you have Paul forever in the Word. Right? Memorize this Word because they're going to take it from us. Memorize it. Get it in your heart. This is the way to live. This this is the way to live. This is the way to be sitting in prison and rejoicing at the same time. Right? If, if, If we have hope in anything else and that gets taken away from us when we're sitting in prison, we won't be rejoicing. We won't be singing. Our faith will be deteriorating and we'll wonder where God is when God has always told us where He is and what He desires. And the heart to which he draws near, beloved. These are biblical values that we are called to imitate, not to respect or admire from afar. Paul would say, look at what we have in Jesus. The power with which Jesus will transform our earthly bodies and all that go along with them to be like his glorious body. That's the power that enables Jesus to subject everything to himself. This transformation will take place either at our death, well, technically at his return, when if we have died, our bodies are raised up and made new. But this is the promise the citizens of heaven have here and now. I don't need to cling to what's going to be transformed into something else. This this is temporary, thank God. This is temporary. All this is temporary. This isn't 
really real as far as what actually is going to remain. All of it. We can't take a blasé attitude towards that which is passing away. Right? I know all this is passing away. Then act like it. Live like it. What would that look like? Do we realize how salt, salty and light, what's the adjective I want here? Illuminating that would be. If we acted like this wasn't our home. How many layers does somebody have to peel away to figure out, oh, you believe that this isn't your home? Look at what we have in Jesus. This is the promise the citizens of heaven have right here, right now. What could we possibly need or hope for from the world? Just don't, just don't fall into it. Regardless of where my earthly citizenship is, what can it offer me that compares with this promise in Philippians 3? And if it was just meant to be a nice thought about where we're going to go when we die... That's not what heaven is for. That's not what it's supposed to be doing in us right now. It, it's, it's not just informing our future. It's meant to change our present. That I am a citizen of heaven. It's not just that we go there when we die, beloved. If we die before he returns. It's that we are bona fide citizens of that place. And that citizenship transcends this citizenship. What would make that clearer? to people what would compromise it and again if it was just meant to be a nice thought about where we're going when we die Paul wouldn't end his section for this section like this in 4.1 therefore my brothers whom I love and long for my joy and crown so this all ends with a big therefore he's saying because the power of Christ will transform us from bodies that crave the things of this earth and simultaneously decay along with this earth into glorious bodies that have no want, no decay, no corruption, no lack, no sickness, no pain, no sin. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Thus, don't miss that word. Stand firm thus. How? That's what thus means. Stand firm by contemplating the transforming power of Christ. My beloved, Paul said. Trying to get you, believers, get us to have no hope, no pride in our earthly citizenship, has nothing to do with what America is. I would preach this no matter what country we lived in together. Right? Everywhere that isn't heaven is Rome. Babylon. It has everything to do with you being able to stand firm. And we must be grounded only in Christ. The Lordship of the living Christ whose reign confers our citizenship to us now is the grounds on which we stand firm. There's no other thing to stand on. Nothing. 
you and I are going to be transformed, beloved. And the promise that comes from Christ, who lives and reigns at the Father's right hand, is so sure and so certain that He counts as citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. Counts us that right now. You are a citizen of heaven, believer. Do you understand what that's doing? What that's meant to do to you when you suffer and when you struggle and when you wonder if God is there? You are a citizen of heaven. For Jesus to speak like this in His Word means He must really think He can make all this come to pass. And beloved, He will. Trust Him. Trust only Him.